0: welcome to another episode of Mike's Money Picks. Today on the podcast we're gonna be breaking down the last full slate of DFS action for this college basketball season. Talking about Saturday's Final Four. It is a two-game slate for us on DraftKings and on FanDuel as well. Uh, So really this is our last big opportunity for a full slate on college basketball. Now I will be back for the National Championship Game Showdown slate. I will be doing a preview for that. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You'll be notified when that episode drops. Now it is kind of sad with college basketball and Like, there's not going to be as much content here in the podcast. We're still going to be doing golf episodes weekly. Next week is the Masters, which is a big one. Um, And, you know, I don't really know where we're going to go next. Um, So, season long NFL content is around the corner uh, for sure. Um, We will be getting to that um, more or less at some point over the spring and the summer. Um, But, like, I don't really know what else to do. I'm not as, you know, knowledgeable about baseball as I am the other sports. Um, The NBA, like, I love, I do play DFS for the NBA, but the problem is with producing content for the NBA is that there is people out there that have better tools and better um, just projections and knowledge than I do. Um, And there's also like it's really hard to produce content for the NBA because of all the late breaking injuries. Like I could record an episode on Wednesday night that by the time the slate locks on Thursday, it's just totally inaccurate. So um, maybe the NBA playoffs, I might come back because the NBA playoffs gets a little bit more into strategy and into game theory, as opposed to just finding guys who just don't happen to be injured late in the NBA regular season. So we'll see where we go from there, y'all. But Make sure, if you've enjoyed all the content from the podcast this college basketball season, come back next year. We will be back. As I've mentioned on the podcast before, I am going to be having a baby in August. It is going to be a daughter, but the podcast is going to continue, I can tell you that much. Um, Even when my daughter does arrive, we're still going to be finding a way to produce content, produce this podcast for you guys, because I have very much enjoyed doing it for this past season. So, anyway... We got the final four, y'all, and it's four teams that I sure as heck didn't see being here. And in fact, when I was picking the Elite Eight games, I went one for four. Um, I got UConn right. I got the other three wrong. So um, certainly an unexpected final four. Let's see how these games are going to play out. So here on the podcast, I'm going to kind of break down how I expect the games to play out and kind of how. Um, You can fill out your DFS lineups with both of these teams as well. So um, let's go ahead and start the analysis with the first game of the night, which is FAU in San Diego State. But first, let's get a quick word from our friends at Spotify. All right. So the Florida Atlantic versus San Diego State game, which I'm sure everybody had in their brackets, um, is going to be the lower total of the two games. Ken Palm has this one as San Diego State, 67 to 66 for a total of 133, which is about 20 points lower than the UConn uh, Miami game. Now, this is a little bit of a contrast in styles. Uh, FAU is 155th in the nation in tempo, according to Ken which is actually the second fastest on the slate. They also rank 29th in defensive efficiency per Ken which is third on the slate. However, San Diego State, they are the slowest team on the slate, checking in at 266th, and they're the best defensive efficiency team ranking fourth. So what you're seeing is FAU, who's a decently fast team, decently good at defense, is playing a San Diego State team that's going to try to slow them down, and they're going to try to Turn this into a rock fight now another thing that makes this kind of a contrast of styles is fau likes to play four guards whereas san diego state goes with a more traditional two big lineup so it's definitely gonna be interesting to see if either of these teams alter their rotations we're going to talk about some of those possibilities when we get to the individual team breakdowns now how san diego state beats teams they force their opponents to take a lot of threes by really packing everything in the paint and so, you know, they force a lot of threes, and but they defend it well because they forced the second worst three-point percentage of any defense in the country. So a lot of threes at a very low rate and really not a whole lot of shots inside against this San Diego State defense. So that is how they kind of force teams to get out of their comfort zone is they force you to take bad threes. Now, San Diego State does have six losses this season, though, and five of the six teams who beat them shot over 30% from three in that game. The exception was Arkansas, which should not surprise anybody. They were a terrible three-point shooting team and they're really athletic, more athletic than San Diego State. But the bottom line is, if you're playing the San Diego State team and they're forcing you to take a lot of threes and you just happen to make them, then you have a chance at winning this game. And FAU seems like a team that could do that. FAU with Dusty May is a very analytics-driven, forward-thinking team that kind of operates more with like an NBA team System, maybe not maybe systems is the wrong word, but an NBA way of thinking where they either want to get all the way to the rim or they want to try to get an open three. They don't want to take mid range jumpers. They don't want to take long twos in it anyway. So this could be a team that you know they get high from three. They could give San Diego State a run for their money. I think this FAU team, they're not really a Cinderella. I put them in the category of like a 2013 Wichita State or like a 2010-2011 Butler where they made it to the Final Four. Yeah, they're a mid-major, but they got the talent to win this whole thing. They're not just here and happy to be there like a 2018 Loyola Chicago or like a 2006 George Mason. This team has a legitimate chance to win two games this week and cut down the Nets as national champions. Now, if they're going to do that, it's going to be on the backs of John L. Davis and Elijah Martin. They've been the two most consistently used owls in the NCAA tournament. Both of these two guys hit four times value against Kansas State. And Elijah Martin it has attempted the most three-pointers on this team all season. So if there's going to be a guy that gets hot from three, it could be Elijah Martin. And he actually shoots at a slightly higher percentage than... John L. Davis. So um, if you're looking to think that, well, you know, maybe we're just going to attack the three-point line, then Elijah Martin's probably the guy of the two that you would prefer. We've talked about these two guys a lot. I'm really trying to do a lot of research and figure out ways I can say things that I haven't already said um, because, you know, we've kind of talked about how Deja and Martin – or. Um, John L. Davis and Elijah Martin in the past, they both profile with a high usage rate. They both have a high ceiling. They both have floor games. They tend to not really hit value together very often. Um, So basically, if you're looking at building a DFS lineup and you're looking to pick one of these two guys, to me, Martin profiles as the better pick because he is the guy that's more likely to get hot from three. Now, speaking of getting hot from three, though, Brian Greenlee is Florida Atlantic's best three-point shooter at 41%. He's played in between 21 and 20 minutes in every NCAA tournament game, and he scored in between 13 and 18 fantasy points in every NCAA tournament game. You would be relying on a hot shooting night from Brian Greenlee if he were to get to five times value, but with the price tag that he's at and with the fact that you're going to have to find value in places you don't want to on this slate, I definitely think there's a chance, especially considering, like I said, if they're attempting a lot of threes and he gets hot, he's going to get you to that value pretty quickly. Now, Nick Boyd is another great Guard for Florida Atlantic, who is having a great NCAA tournament. Well, he was having a great NCAA tournament until the Kansas State game. He is more reliant on the peripheral stats to hit value rebounds and assists, but he has also attempted the second most three-pointers on the team this season behind Elijah Martin. So I don't know how to feel exactly about Nick Boyd. I definitely don't think the rebound and assist upside are there against a San Diego State team who is a good rebounding team, who is not going to give up a whole lot of assists, and who is going to try to limit the number of possessions. Um, so I don't think that that upside is quite there for Nick Boyd, but he is a guy who shoots a lot of threes, and if the whole narrative is going to be you know to pick guys who can get hot from three, he is a guy that can do that. When you're building a two-game slate DFS lineup, y'all, it is super important that you build with a narrative in mind. So when you're picking players, you should be picking lineups that are along the minds of, oh, FAU is going to win this game, and here's how they're going to win it with these guys correlating together. Or here's how San Diego State's going to win this game. Here's how they're going to win it with these guys correlating together. So if you're looking for the narrative of FAU gets hot from three, Nick Boyd is definitely a candidate, as are, like we've already gone over, Brian Greenlee and Elijah Martin. Now, I also really like Brandon Weatherspoon in this game for Florida Atlantic. He's a bigger guard who can match up physically with the San Diego State guys and you kind of see that he did that in the last two games with Tennessee and with uh, Kansas State he's played boosted minutes in those two games he's actually averaged 20 minutes in those two games and he almost hit five times value against Tennessee now where that has kind of affected their whole rotation is it's taken minutes away from Jalen Gaffney um, who's one of the reserve guards for FAU as well I would be more inclined to play Michael Forrest over Jalen Gaffney Forrest has played more minutes Forrest has been better shooting than Jalen Gaffney recently and like I said Gaffney's minutes have been eaten into by Brandon Weatherspoon so I definitely wouldn't play anything like Weatherspoon and Gaffney together when you're looking Looking at this backcourt for Florida Atlantic, they play so many guys that it's hard to pin down just one, but if you're looking to target one from this game, like I said, I'm likely to go after a guy that I think can get high from three, or maybe a guy like Brandon Weatherspoon who's going to play boosted minutes because of the matchups. Now in the frontcourt, Florida Atlantic only plays two of them, and that is John Carlo Rosado and Vladislav Golden, and they never play at the same time. Now Saturday against Kansas State was the Vlad Golden game. He had 37.8 fantasy points in 28 minutes, which was almost his season high in minutes and almost his season high in fantasy points as well. Now I think that that was more matchup based um, just because of golden kind of had a size advantage down low against Kansas state. Rosado did not. And golden got going early and I kind of think they just rode the hot hand and stuck with golden. Now golden also played more minutes against Tennessee and that would be because of like, you know um, Tennessee's really tall. And so golden's taller than Rosado. So golden played more minutes than Rosado again. Now Pretty much, that's really diminished Rosado's value the last two games, and he really hasn't done a whole lot, and I think a whole lot of people are just going to click flag golden for that reason. So I think that makes Rosado a very good contrarian play in DFS, but certainly a risky contrarian play because he hasn't done a whole lot with those minutes. Now, in terms of, you know, will these two guys actually have success against the San Diego State front court? Here's a stat that doesn't bode well for that. No big man in the NCAA tournament has hit four times value against San Diego State. Um, So I just don't really see myself getting a whole lot of exposure to Golden or Rosado against that San Diego State interior defense. All right, now let's talk about San Diego State. So San Diego State is a team that, like we talked about, they're going to slow you down. They're going to play rock-solid defense. But how have teams actually beaten FAU so far this season? Not a whole lot of people have done it. Every team that has beaten FAU has scored at least 74 points in that game. So is San Diego State getting to 74? I don't know, but that certainly opens up a whole lot of fancy value because they don't get to 74 very often. Also, every team that has beaten FAU has shot at least 30% from three in that game, which is not a bad stat for San Diego State because they actually shoot 33.9% from three on the season. They just don't take a whole lot of threes. Now, to me, for San Diego State, when you're looking at this offense, everything boils down to Matt Bradley. He has seen a lot of usage in the NCAA tournament, but he has been incredibly inefficient. He's 6-for-27 from the field in his last three games, and he has not made a three in those three games. Now, I think that that's going to kind of cause people to not click on Matt Bradley into their lineups on Saturday, but the shots are kind of still there. And he's a very physical guy. He's a big body for 6'5". And I don't think FAU really has anybody that's going to match up well with him. So he could be a guy that, you know, we might be willing to go back to. He's had some ceiling games. He's at a depressed price right now. I kind of think you can go back to Matt Bradley, but if you don't want to go back to Matt Bradley, which I totally would get Darion Trammell has been the guy who has picked up the slack. He's had at least 12 real points and 19 fantasy points in their last three games. And he's also taken at least nine shots in all of those games. To me, you can only play one of Trammell or Bradley. I don't see a scenario where both of them end up going off. Um, I definitely think it's going to be a one or the other type of deal because I think Tremell has been the high usage guy because Bradley has been struggling. Now, to me, you can also play Lamont Butler with either of them. He is a guy that's not really in the same category as those two. He's not like an alpha offensive scorer type. He relies much more on the peripheral stats, and his shooting can be very streaky, but he has found a way to get to 21 fantasy points in each of his last three games, kind of doing it in different pathways as well. But he's a guy that definitely gives you a pretty solid floor because of what he does in the periphery. Now, Micah Parrish and Adam Seiko are the bench guards for San Diego State. Seiko is pretty much just a cardio guy. He's going to play a decent amount of minutes, but he's not going to have a very high usage rate when he's out there. I think Seiko is going to be a very low-owned value play. And on a two-game slate, like you're going to have to try to find yourself a low-owned value play that hits if you want to win big. And he's gonna be a guy that like could fit in that category, but I'm just not seeing the upside. He hasn't hit double digit fancy points in his last six games. So even though he is low owned and could give you the chance at winning a GPP, I don't think it's very likely that it is Adam Seiko. There's other guys in his price range that I would prefer. Now, Micah Parrish on the other hand, he's been having a good NCAA tournament, but he underwhelmed against Creighton. I think what really helped him out was the two games against Furman and against Alabama where Matt Bradley was in foul trouble. Parrish was the guy that was playing a lot of minutes. Now, if you are fading Matt Bradley, it's probably not a bad idea to play Micah Parrish because if Bradley is struggling or if Bradley is in foul trouble, it's going to be Micah Parrish that is the main beneficiary. Now, in the front court for San Diego State, Nathan Mensah has had himself a little bit of a run. He's had at least 21 fancy points in three straight NCAA tournament games, and he's had at least two blocks in all three of those games. He doesn't attempt a lot of shots, but he is a great rebounder. As a whole, both of these teams are good rebounding teams, so I don't necessarily think that this is like a plus value or a minus value matchup on the rebounding end for anybody in either of the lineups. Now, I think that that gives Mets a pretty solid path, honestly. I could definitely see going to him. I could definitely see him having some success against Black Golden. Now, Jaden Laddie is their best low post scorer, but he rarely plays more than 20 minutes, and he doesn't block shots. So what you're seeing with Jaden Laddie is he's a scoring-dependent player on a low minutes total. So if you're playing Jaden Laddie. You've got to have a feeling that this is just going to be a game where Ladie has some success early against Golden or whoever's in, and they just kind of keep going back to it time after time after time. I don't think it's a very likely outcome, but it is definitely an outcome that has a little bit of a ceiling if you think that that's the case. But like I said, I don't think it's very likely. Now, Kashaun Johnson is a guy that I actually like. Uh, he plays the four primary for San Diego state and he has his best games against teams that play small ball and FAU is going to start four guards. So, you know, He's kind of a guy that could come in at low ownership because he hasn't done a whole lot recently. He could be a guy that could give you a ceiling game like he's had against other small ball teams and really help you win a GPP on DraftKings or FanDuel. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say this up front, though. He's not a safe play. He's not a guy that I'm like saying I'm locking into my lineups by any stretch of the imagination. He's not very consistent either. He hasn't hit four times value in five straight games, which is kind of a red flag. But like I said, I kind of think the matchup sits very well for him. And I kind of like the idea of him being a lower-owned kind of guy. All right, so I will give my official pick for this game um, after the preview of the second game, which we will get to here right about now, but we're going to take a quick breather first. All right, so the second game of the night, which is surely going to draw higher ratings, is going to be the Miami UConn game. And Ken Palm has that one as a UConn 80 to 73 uh, with a total of 153 points, which is 20 points higher than game one. UConn is actually Ken Palm's number one ranked team now, so it should not come as a shocker that they're going to be favored on there. Now, Miami, they kind of profile pretty nicely as a matchup. They're 90th in the nation in tempo, uh, which is the fastest on the slate, and they're 104th in the nation in defensive efficiency, which is the lowest on the slate. Now, Miami's going to have to overcome those deficiencies, right? They're, they're not a great defensive team. Um, but there is a way they can win this game. UConn is a great team on both sides of the ball. They're top 11 in Ken Palm on both sides. They're one of the best rebounding teams in the nation. But UConn's main weakness is that they foul a lot. And when you look at their losses, the recipe's kind of simple. All of their losses, you get a cold shooting night from Jordan Hawkins and or Tristan Newton. He can be prone to them as well. You get a night where Andre Jackson Jr. is not involved in the offense, and you get foul trouble from somebody, usually Jordan Hawkins or Andre Jackson. So if you're kind of betting on a Miami win, how can they get to that? Well, first off, the cold shooting night from Jordan Hawkins, that can happen anytime. Uh, Andre Jackson Jr. not being involved, well, you get him in foul trouble, and that takes care of point number three, which is you gotta get somebody in foul trouble. So I think Miami's matchup advantage in this game is going to be at the four spot with Jordan Miller, who was absolutely incredible against Texas. He was perfect from the field and from the foul line and had 37 fancy points. Y'all, he was 13 for 13 from the foul line, and it was kind of heartbreaking to watch as a Texas fan because you're just kind of like, he's got to miss eventually, right? And he just never did. Now, he had that 37 fancy point performance, and he only pulled down three boards, and he averages six on the season. So Jordan Miller, to me, is the spot where... I kind of think he's in the best position to succeed out of any of the Miami guys. Not only is he coming in off of his best game literally ever, but he is coming in to a matchup that I think he's going to have an advantage. If UConn insists on playing Alex Caravan at the four, he's going to have a speed and quickness advantage, and I think he can take advantage of that. More on that a little bit later, though. Now, for Miami, The ACC player of the year is Isaiah Wong. He's another guy who needs to have a big game. He would be the guy who would get Andre Jackson Jr. or Jordan Hawkins in foul trouble. Now, Wong has had a pretty solid shot rate. He's taken 11 shots in their last three games, at least 11 shots in their last three games. He's taken 20 total free throws in those games. I kind of think he's the guy that he's going to have to have, along with Jordan Miller, a big game offensively if they want to win this game. In the Texas game, he hit a lot of tough, well-defended, contested shots that just defense couldn't do anything about he just hit him and he they're going to need a few of those from isaiah wong if they want to win this game now nigel pack is a much more boom or bust fantasy player um as opposed to isaiah wong he tends to get a lot of shots and not a whole lot of peripheral stats. Nigel Pack has actually had double-digit shots in five straight games and at least 12 shots in four of those five games. But because of how inconsistent his shooting is, he's only reached four times value in two of those five games. I kind of think Nigel Pack makes for a solid GPP play. I think he's going to come in with less ownership than Wong and Miller. And I kind of think that he still gives you that same ceiling. He's just going to give you a lot lower floor as well. Now, Wuka Poplar is the fourth guard that starts for the Miami Hurricanes. He's going to have to play big minutes in this game because of his defense, and he absolutely filled up the stat sheet against Texas. He had some points, rebounds, and assists, and that totaled up to 34 fancy points. The only problem is, is that now he got priced up because of it. He's up in the 6K range. And so, at his current salary, that would be his only game over four times value in the NCAA tournament, which is. Kinda worrisome. I kind of don't think that he's gonna have that same ceiling performance that he had against Texas, and he's at a higher price than he was. So is he a guy that you can put in your lineups? Sure, but I just don't really I don't like the price tag, and I just think that it's much less likely that he hits value because of how he has been priced up. He's going to need the same type of game that he had against Texas. So for Miami, the only bench guard who has any value to me is Bensley Joseph. So over the course of the season, if there's anybody from Miami that gets injured or gets in foul trouble or is having an off night, whatever, uh, Jim Laranaga trusts Bensley Joseph to take up those minutes. And so he's the guy that I would have a little bit of interest in in for those Miami bench guys. I'm not really interested in Beverly or Walker or anybody else. Now, Norchad Omer is Miami's only big. He is an absolute unit down low. Like he's just really strong and he's really good at rebounding. Um, but I don't think he's going to really have much of an advantage against Sonogo for UConn. Omir usually uses his pure strength to his advantage, and Sonogo is pretty darn strong. So I don't really think that this sets up very well for Omir. But Omir doesn't really seem to be that affected by the matchups. He's had at least 28 fantasy points in four straight NCAA tournament games, which is impressive that he got to that mark against Texas when he was in foul trouble pretty much the whole game. He's also had at least nine rebounds in all four of those games. To me, Omir feels like a very high floor play, but I. Don't think he's going to give you the ceiling performance against Sunogo and the rest of this UConn front line. All right, now let's profile things for UConn. So the good news for UConn is that when you look at Miami's losses, they tend to be against teams that play too bigs. And those teams have had a lot of success against Miami, specifically Duke, Pitt, and Maryland. Now, in DFS, we have played bigs against Miami all season long just because they only play one big, Omir, and he's not very tall, and they're not a great rebounding team. Now, which is kind of why it broke my heart that we couldn't play Dylan DeSue for Texas last Sunday. Still kind of heard about it in case y'all can't tell. Anyway, Adama Sanogo has been great for UConn in the NCAA tournament, and he's going to be the guy that would take advantage of this Miami problem against big men. He scored at least 32 fancy points in all four NCAA tournament games, and he's taken at least 11 shots in all of those NCAA tournament games. Now, to me, it's most impressive that he still managed to hit four times value against Gonzaga when he went three for 11 from the field. Now, we do have to talk about Gonzaga's unique defensive strategy in that game. Gonzaga decided that they were going to put Drew Timmy on Andre Jackson Jr. and essentially try to make it a four on, five game with Timmy just kind of helping out in the paint, daring Andre Jackson Jr. to shoot. But it kind of didn't work as you can kind of see by how the game played out. Andre Jackson Jr. may not be a shooter, but he does have an incredibly high basketball IQ. He also has a very unique skill set but that basketball IQ allowed him to take advantage of Timmy just not paying any attention to him. He made some really smart cuts. He made some really smart decisions in terms of spacing that allowed him to kind of, you know, pick apart the defense with and without the ball. And it also allowed Adama Sanogo to play distributor because there were times where Adama Sanogo just hit Andre Jackson Jr. for a layup. And Adama Sanogo had his career high in 8 ass- or 6 assists, excuse me. So, I kind of think Sanogo could be in for another big game. I don't think you're going to see that same defensive strategy, though. So I don't think you can rely on the assists, but we know that with Miami, the points and the rebounds for the big men can absolutely be there. Now, Andre Jackson Jr., we'll go ahead and give him his full credit now. He's the most important player for UConn to win. He is a true point forward uh, and he's not a great shooter, but he absolutely fills up the stat sheet. He's been incredible in UConn wins. He's hit four times value in three of their four NCAA tournament games and his worst games come in UConn losses where he's not very involved in the offense. Dan Hurley has been very vocal in the media saying that you know he realizes that he has to have Andre Jackson Jr. You know heavily involved in the offense. Now, Andre Jackson jr also has bad games in dfs when he's in foul trouble but i think he's kind of realized that he can't get himself in foul trouble it's it's taken him a few games but i think he's finally learned that lesson the marquette loss in the big or the big east tournament was one where he did foul out and he had a horrible fantasy performance so i don't think you're going to see that out of andre jackson jr because i think he's learned his lesson Now, Jordan Hawkins is UConn's shot maker. He has back-to-back games over 13 shots and 20 real points. But the downside is is it doesn't really turn into a whole lot of fantasy points. He's only had 34 and 31 fantasy points in those two games. The problem is he doesn't really get a whole lot of peripheral stats. So if he ever does get those peripheral stats, he could have a huge ceiling. But he just doesn't do it very often. But I could kind of make the argument that Miami would be a good time for him to do that. Miami's a pretty high-tempo team, so you're going to see increased possessions. That's more opportunities. For rebounds and assists, period. They're also not a good rebounding team. So if Jordan Hawkins just happens to find his way down there for a rebound, he might happen to get it against Miami. So I could kind of see this being a ceiling game for Jordan Hawkins. But like I said, if you're anticipating a Miami win, you're not going to be playing Jordan Hawkins in your lineup. Now, I got to be honest on this one. I'm less intrigued with Tristan Newton um, on this DFS slate than I probably have been in a long time. He hasn't been great lately, and it's because of how involved Andre Jackson Jr. has been, and it's because of how shot-happy Jordan Hawkins has been. Newton's kind of like a slightly less productive combination of both Jackson and Hawkins. He gets a lot of peripheral stats, but not as much as Jackson, and he does get his share of shots, just not as much as Hawkins. So to me, in DFS, he sets up for a contrarian play. If you are looking to fade Jackson or Hawkins, or maybe both, then Tristan Newton could be a guy that you could go to, and I think he will surely be less owned, Given the lack of recent form coming in. Now, another guy that I'm not that intrigued to play is Alex Caraban. He's only hit four times value in one of his last six games. And I kind of could see him getting played off of the floor because I don't think he matches up well with this Miami team. Jordan Miller is going to have an, an insane quickness advantage on him. He's not the most fleet of foot defensively, but I could also see it going the other way as well. Caravan's not really a low post scorer, but he can kind of do a lot of things offensively that could give Jordan Miller a little bit of trouble. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I don't think he's a good matchup for Miami. I I really don't. Like I said, I tried to make the argument for it to go the other way, and I just, I'm not fully believing in it. I think that this is a game where Alex Caraban does not play a whole lot of minutes and does not hit value. Now, because of how small Miami is, I could see this being a big Donovan Klingon game. He doesn't play a lot of minutes, but he has two five times value games in his last eight games. He can accumulate a lot of stats in not a lot of time, like few others in college basketball. And he tends to have his ceiling games against smaller teams like Iona, St. John's, and Marquette. Well, you know who's a small team? Miami. So I could absolutely see this being a big clinging game. Now, we got to talk about the possibility, like we were saying, if Caravan does get played off the floor and UConn decides to go small, it's going to mean more minutes for Joey Calcaterra and Naheem Aline. Calcaterra is just a pure shooter that, if he gets hot, can get you to four times value very, very quickly. Aline does a little more in the peripheral stats. He usually plays more minutes than Calcaterra, and he has a tendency to play well in UConn wins. So if you're building on a UConn win, then I don't think he's a bad piece to include as a part of a team stack or a game stack. All right, so we're gonna take a quick breather and then we're gonna kind of recap everything and give our official predictions for these two games. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's kind of do a quick little DFS breakdown of this slate um, before we do our official predictions. So after doing all the research for this slate, y'all, I'm really leaning heavier into a game stack of the Miami-Yukon game uh, as opposed to the FAU-San Diego State game. So I'm probably going to start my lineup off. This should come as no surprise. He's going to be super highly owned, but I'm probably going to start off with just clicking on Adama Sanogo at the forward position and trying to make everything else fit from there. I'm likely going to pair him with another UConn guy either Jackson or Hawkins, um, and then probably get Miami you know, to bring it back with Miller or Wong, um, and then probably a lean as one of the value plays from that game, and then try to piece it together with value plays from the FAU-San Diego State game from there. Because what I'm thinking is, if the FAU-San Diego State game is going to be the slower game and a lot of guys don't hit value, then it costs you less points, to miss value when a guy's a lower salary, right? Like if a guy's at 4K, then he needs 16 points. Well, the minimum or the maximum amount of points you can lose is 16. If a guy's at 8K, he needs 32 points to hit value. Well, then you can possibly lose 32 points if he gets you a goose egg. So I think there's minimal risk in playing the value plays from the FAU San Diego State game. It's just figuring out which ones are going to be the right one. Um, like I said, I do like Naheem Aline as a value from the Miami-Yukon game, but I haven't put together a whole lineup yet. So we'll kind of see how that works out. Um, If you would like to see what I end up doing in my full breakdown um, of the slate from a DFS perspective, head on over to the Patreon, patreon.com slash Mike's Money Picks. All right. So let's go ahead and give official predictions as much as it pains me to do this because um, really as a Texas fan, Texas should be in this final four. They should. I feel like if Dylan DeSue didn't get get hurt, they would be in over Miami. In fact, there's probably – the crazy part about this Final Four is like I could look at like six different instances where every team in this Final Four could have lost one of their games, like San Diego State against Creighton, uh, FAU against Memphis, Miami against Drake, against Texas, um, and then UConn – actually, UConn, I can't find a way where UConn could have lost a game. So anyway – One of the craziest Final Fours I think is going to have one of the crazier outcomes. I think FAU is going to beat San Diego State. I don't think San Diego State can consistently score enough points um, to win a Final Four game because I think FAU is going to be able to score more than Creighton did. Creighton shot two for 17 from three against San Diego State, and they almost won that game. So I'm definitely thinking the FAU can do a little better than that, put a little more pressure on them, Um, and I don't think San Diego State's going to be able to score enough. So I have FAU winning Game 1. In Game 2, I'm rocking with UConn, and I'm going to be honest. I think UConn blows them out. I think you see a huge game from Adama Sanogo down low. I think that the guards for UConn are able to hit. I don't think Miami is good enough defensively to contain UConn, and as good as they are offensively. Wong and Miller were incredible against Texas. They hit a lot of contested shots. They hit a lot of tough shots. They were great at the foul line, as great as they are offensively. UConn's a great defensive team, and I don't think they're going to score enough to keep up with the Huskies. So I see UConn winning that one big. Like I think I'm willing to lay whatever points Vegas would gives me for for that one. I think UConn's going to win that game by double digits. That's just my feeling. Now I could be proven wrong. Miami's proved me wrong about three times. Already. Actually, looking at my bracket, I actually had both FAU and San Diego State to lose in the first round. So so what do I know when it comes to picking these games? But looking at all the data, I, I just think that that's what I see happening. And I really would be surprised if the UConn Huskies do not end up cutting down the nets next Monday night. All right. So that does it for our last big slate episode of the college basketball season. If you have been here all season long with us on college basketball, please drop a rating and a review y'all. It really does help me out a lot. I cannot stress this enough. It really does help me when you rate and review. So please do so uh, and help me out. Now also hit that subscribe button. So you'll be notified when new episodes drop, like our showdown slate episode, Monday night for college basketball and like all the master's content next week. And then also whatever content we find our way into after that. you so Season-long fantasy football is around the corner. So if you play that, we will be around for that. Um, And I'll I'll find another way to produce some content. Don't worry. So um, that's what we're looking at going forward. Anyway, that does it for the final four episode, guys. Um, Super looking forward to watching these two games. I'd be looking forward to it more if my Longhorns were in it. If you can't tell, I'm still a little hurt about it. But anyway, I'll be all right. I'm just happy they hired Rodney Terry. So anyway, I'll go ahead and end the episode there. Um, best of luck to you guys and all your DFS endeavors for the final four. Thank you guys for listening and I will see you next time.